Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Hello and welcome to The Reading Life, your weekly look at the Louisiana literary scene. I'm Susan Larson. This week we'll be talking with novelist Maurice Carlos Ruffin about his highly anticipated historical novel, The American Daughters. It is truly a pleasure to welcome Maurice Carlos Ruffin back to The Reading Life to talk about his third book, The American Daughters. Maurice, a New Orleans native and a graduate of the University of New Orleans Creative Writing Workshop, is now a professor of creative writing at Louisiana State University and the author of We Cast a Shadow, a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award, the Penn Open Book Award, and the Dayton Literary Peace Prize. His second book, the short story collection, The Ones Who Don't Say They Love You, was long listed for the Story Prize and was a finalist for the Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence. Now he's back with a novel which has been popping up on the most anticipated list of 2024 and is here at last, The American Daughters. Maurice, I'm so happy to have this book in my hands. Welcome. Susan, I'm so happy to be here. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, the beginning of this book has one of those stories that I just love because it was one of those happy accidents that happens when you're rooting around in a New Orleans archive mm-hmm. and find something that just leads you in a great direction. So tell us about the origin story of the American Daughters. Well, it started in the archive at the Historic New Orleans Collection around 2004. And I was doing some research and I stumbled upon some articles that talked about how the Confederates of that time didn't really mount a full defense, and I had wondered about that for a long time. Then I came on research later about my ancestors and about other uh, ladies in the city around that time. And I just started wondering, what if the ladies from my family were actually the reason why the Confederates couldn't fight so hard? They were sabotaging them from the background the entire time. And I made this book. Genius. (laughs) (laughs) Now, listening to ancestors is an important theme of this book, too, isn't it? Yes, it is. So talk a little bit about the importance of that in your life and as life as a writer. Well, I think for all of us, our ancestors are very important to us. I think for many African-Americans, one of the challenges is that once you go past, say, 1870 or so, the records are not very clear because many of the black folks from that time, you have their first name and that's it. Mm -hmm. Of course, in New Orleans, there were many free people of color also where you could get the information. And so I I think for me, um, it was a combination of finding actual documents, uh, doing some research on sites like 23andMe, for example. Yeah. Um, but also this idea that comes from a, a, a scholar named uh, Sadia Hartman, who talks about critical fabulation. And she says that sometimes you have to make these logical leaps based on what you know, because at that time, many forces were working to obscure these stories. And so we can work hard to sort of fill in the blanks and tell true stories. Mm-hmm. And this book talks a lot about what you know and what you feel. Mm-hmm. All those sources of, you know, knowledge. 
Absolutely. I mean, the same way that George Washington, you know, chopping the cherry tree down, it's not like an actual story, but it does tell us something about what that person was and who, what he meant to us uh, mm-hmm. as a country. Now, reading this book, it struck me once again how much you love writing about women and how <laughs> well you do it. So tell us about Adi and Sunit and Lenore and the women who make up the American Daughters. Well, I had the good fortune of um, having the most wonderful mother, the most wonderful grandmother. Um, I'm married as well. I have many good friends who are women. And I think that sometimes guys who are writers feel a sort of trepidation to write these characters. <laughs> you know, can you get it right? And I can tell you, when I started out years ago, I had those same thoughts. But then I realized that, you know, I know them so well. And I know their personalities. And so even the idea of writing a character like, um, you know, Adi, who's this sort of spunky young girl who's being led by her mother, who's this sort of fearless uh, matriarch, I'm like, well, that's like my grandmother and my cousins and my aunties. You know, knowing their voices, knowing how they think, knowing how courageous and smart they are, just giving those attributes to these characters made them come to life. Mm-hmm. Knowing how they outsmart men, of course. Of course. <laughs> well, I mean, a big part of it is like I'm, I'm writing these things and thinking, look how they're outsmarting these guys. I'm like, wait, were they doing the same thing to me? You know, <laughs> like my mother and cousins and aunties. I'm like, probably, yes, they were. Probably, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so give us the setup. Give us the story of these, these three interesting women and, and how they fit together in this book. Well, you know, this book, it kind of flew out. I think I wrote the first draft of this book in about four months. Wow. Which to me, I'm not that fast of a writer typically, but the story is pretty simple. So we have Adi, who is a sharp-witted girl, and Sunit is her fierce mother. They're inseparable. And they are enslaved in the French Quarter of New Orleans in the pre-Civil War times. Now, they're separated later on, but I think what this book is about is how even in times where you feel like you are alone and that you have nobody backing you up, you can find and build community. And so Adi comes across somebody named Lenore, who is a free woman of color. Like many people from that time, she owned her own business. Mm-hmm. So in the book, she owns something called the Mockingbird Inn, which is kind of wonderful little hotel where people hang out uh, of, of all races and ages and genders. And I think what happens is that they each sort of give something to the other. Adi gains a sense of self and courage. And Lenore realizes that, you know, she can do more than what she's been doing in the past. And so it's like when peanut butter met chocolate, these two together (laughs) create this really wonderful mixture of friendship and community building that I think people really enjoy in this book. Exactly. Now, thinking about what Jessamyn Ward said about her protagonist in Let Us Descend, she was talking about writing about the challenges of a character with no physical agency, Mm -hmm. an enslaved character. And I'm struck by the way you give your characters agency. You Mm. make sure they have some kind of agency. Talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, I've learned a lot from uh, Justin Ward. I mean, she's one of the the most fantastic writers of all time. But there are also books like uh, Robert Jones Jr.'s The Prophets that came out a few years ago. One of my favorites. Yes. Open My Eyes Up. Wonderful book. There's a forthcoming book that I only heard excerpts from by uh, Philip Williams, who's a poet, has a book called Ours that's coming out, I think, next month. And I noticed in, in those texts in particular, the prophets and ours, how much agency these characters had. And I think it just made me think, you know what, even though some of these people are enslaved, um, people, they were not inert. And they could find ways to exercise their personalities, mm-hmm. exercise their desires, outsmart people, outwit people, try things. And um, I think it's important to recognize that even in the worst of time, we still have people that, that are closest to us, our friends, our family, supporting us and backing us up. And so although Adi is enslaved, Lenore is not. And so Lenore can give a lot of support to people like Adi in this book. And, 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 and I think that creates an opportunity to see that there's friendships and there's love and there's even moments of joy that we can express in the literature. 
But Adi and her mother can move about the city, even though mm-hmm. they are enslaved. They have a past. They go to the markets. They see mm-hmm. what's unfolding around them. Absolutely. You know, I think so many narratives have been set in rural areas. We have this assumption about what New Orleans and other big cities were. But in places like New Orleans and to a lesser extent New York and, and D.C., you had this sort of bifurcated society, even amongst black folks themselves. So even though Adi and Sunit are both enslaved in this book, they have this past, and the past allows them to walk around the city, and if they're called out on it, they can show the, the past to the, you know, the police of the time. But they could go places, they could buy things, they could see people, they could have conversations. Now, of course, they were not free, but there was a sense of mobility and agency there because, you know, the man that owned them didn't want to watch everything they did. He, he had to go and do his, his own, you know, so-called important business. And so uh, Sunit is out buying food, out buying clothing, out buying um, stationery, that sort of thing. And that sort of gap allows Adi and others to do some really incredible things later on in the book that I really, it brings me a, a smile on my face thinking about it right now, actually. Slip right through. Oh, yeah, I slip mean. right through. Because they seize the power that comes their way, this book takes on a real urgency. And you have a plot that's filled with suspense and action and innovation. So what are some of the projects they undertake? Well, the main project is something that is historical. And it's the idea that throughout uh, time and across the nation, you had many people who decided to resist however they could resist. Now, we have uh, situations like the 1811 uprising, German Coast Uprising, where people you know, took arms and were mm-hmm. approaching the city and trying to free themselves, but more subtle things. I mean, I just know for a fact that we had many women, especially, who had their hands on poison, for example, right. and had other techniques to free themselves or at least uh, lessen the level of repression in their lives. And so I'm trying to allow in this book, for people who think, you know, that era was, was one story, there are many stories. There's a multiplicity of stories to be told in an era from people who were actually probably okay with it, you know, not that I think that's an okay perspective, to we can resist at every possible level, from arms to sabotage to learning how to read to just saying no, even though you're in danger and seeing how it plays out. And I think in this book, I'm trying to create a cast of characters who each have their own perspective on what freedom means and what um, selfhood means. Mm-hmm. Now, reading this book... And Jasmine's book as well, of course. It seems to me that one of the things that's happening in writing today is that we're getting necessary correctives to those old tropes of the romance and the beauty of New Orleans. We're mm-hmm. getting the way New Orleans really was and as, as seen through maybe a different lens. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think of those descriptions of the slave pens mm-hmm. in Let Us Descend, which are just... Shocking. And I, I think of the subtle differences we see in this book of the, between free people of color and the enslaved people. And these are nuanced and pointed examinations of what New Orleans was like. And so I wonder if you talk a little bit about writing those passages. Absolutely. You know, there have been so many writers and scholars working over the years to correct a lot of these narratives. Mm-hmm. I mean, people like Dr. Mona Lisa Saloy, Lane Kaplan-Levinson, who I think has worked here yeah. in the past. Just this information that's out there. And I don't blame most contemporary people for not knowing what the history is because it's just been buried. So even the example that I remember hearing maybe on Tripod one time where they said there were 52 slave sites, but only two were marked mm-hmm. and only one was correctly marked. So imagine if those sites were actually marked everywhere. We, we kind of go, oh, this house or this jail or this, you know, whatever was a slave site. And people say maybe, maybe it wasn't that bad. They've seen Gone with the Wind. You know, they've seen Scarlett oh. O'Hara and, you know, Butterfly uh, McQueen and, you know, the, you know Hattie McDowell having a great time. But nobody wants to be enslaved. That's why people always fight against slavery. 
And so I think in, in, in my narrative, I'm trying to show the darkness. I'm trying to show the difficulty and make people understand that, you know, the idea of like you're being brought from some rural area in Louisiana on foot, barefoot, you know, right. with like a rope around your neck and around your hands. You're being dragged behind this cart for 100 miles, 500 miles even. And you get to New Orleans, then they're like, it's time to be sold. You don't know where you're going to go next. You don't know who you're going to be living with. I think it's very important to be very clear about what those things would be like if it happened to you today. And these characters, because they're so articulate and they're so observant, they can express to the reader what they're feeling. And I think that's why it's so important for people to understand that there is just a force in the human soul that refused to be enslaved. And mm -hmm. these ladies are a part of that. And I think as they come together throughout the book, you see how that allows them to really uh, get their hands around what it means to be a human and not just a slave. Right. I'm curious what it's like for you now to walk through the French Quarter. I mean, I know you've, you've <laughs> printed up these maps mm -hmm. of the locations in the book. Mm. So how is it you see your city? Because it is your city in so <laughs> many ways. You are mapping this city out through Maurice Ruffin's cartography <laughs> as surely as anybody. So what does that do for you being a son of New Orleans? Well, you know, as usual, Susan, you are correct. In my mind, I'm mapping the city both in terms of the geography and in terms of the time. My first book, We Cast a Shadow, was set in the future. Of a, of a different New Orleans, mm -hmm. a sort of multiverse New Orleans. My second book was mostly contemporary with a few historical stories. This book is set in the past. And it comes out of everything from like my mentor, James Nolan, who was talking about this idea of people saying that slavery was okay. The plantations are a lot of fun to go visit and have weddings and parties at. It's my friend, uh, Tad Bartlett and the Bartlett family who had a condo in the French Quarter. And I had, I'd stayed there a few times and I would hear um, tour guides pass by. And some tour guides are wonderful. Like, they really give you a sense of what it must have been like to be in the city at that time, the good and the bad and the ugly. But some tour guides would put this sort of frosting on things, and they would say, oh, you know, look in the back of that courtyard. You know, those were the servants' quarters. It's a sort of word choice. Those were not servants' quarters. Those were slave quarters. People were being held there by force and being forced to work for free against their will. And so I think for me, as somebody who had a pretty good upbringing in terms of my parents teaching me, mm -hmm. uh, my high school, down 35, for example, teaching me very well in those teachers, um, Jerome Duck Smith teaching me when I met him in person years ago as a teenager, but also seeing the world today and sort of comparing and contrasting what people are saying publicly and what those times are. My job as a writer is to try and express it as honestly as possible and not cover up things and show what New Orleans really is so we can be better in the future. Well, you do it by such simple means is repetition. It's like the phrase, a slave labor camp called a plantation, <laughs> repeated over and over again, so that when it's not there and you just say plantation, you sort of <laughs> think, but wait, <laughs> this is what it is. You know, that is a really smart rhetorical device to raise consciousness just by sheer repetition. Well, thank you for that, too. And I get that phrase um, straight from Mother Tony, Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. She has a version of that in her Song of Solomon. And I think what happens is we become numb to some of these terms. If you just yeah. say slave, that just is, it, it, it goes over our heads. It, we just can't hear it. So if you say enslaved person or enslaved right. human, you go, wait, why are they saying that? If you say this plantation also called a slave labor camp, you go, well, why are they calling it that? And people may say that, you know, Marisha being too forceful or, you, you know, picking nits or whatever. But you know, even a few years ago at Auburn Park, they put up a, a sign along the walking trail that said, um, you know, there was a plantation here and how sweet it was. And I just kind of gasped when I saw it, like, like you gasped just now, right? I was like, why would you do this? I mean, of course, you know, it's propaganda. 
And I think in a time and place when people are losing their rights constantly, women are losing their rights, uh, migrants, people of color, I think it's even more important now to push back and show the truth of it. Because if we don't do it, it's a sort of 1984 scenario with things being written over and called things that, that they were not called in the past. Mm-hmm. Well, you say you did a draft of this book in four months? That's correct. Whoa. At Grisham House in Mississippi. That was, whoa. <laughs> well, that had a lot of good karma attached to it, didn't it? <laughs> it you, know, you know, it didn't until it did. Um, I was there uh, by the good graces of John Grisham and Renee Grisham, uh-huh. as well as the University of Mississippi. And it was a nine-month stay. And during the first four and a half months, I was writing. And I tossed out those pages because I just That's was right. very unhappy with that. those pages. And I took about three weeks off during Christmas. And I said, you know, maybe I'm just not going to get anything done. I'm going to feel very embarrassed about it. And then I'll never forget on December 21st, I got that morning, cooked breakfast, had some coffee. I had you know, prayed the previous night, and it just gushed out. You know, all these ideas, all these voices from these characters just in one fell swoop, and, and they were there. It just fully formed. I was so shocked. I'm so glad. (laughs) (laughs) I am, too. (laughs) Makes two of us. Now, there's so much to balance with it because there's the framing narrative of how the story survives from the past into the future. There's the actual historical narrative and its accuracy and its atmosphere. There's the family narrative Mm -hmm. of Adi and Sunit. And then there's the suspenseful spine going through it all of the American Daughters and this women's group that is filled with resistors. Mm -hmm. That's a lot to pack into (laughs) this narrative. So four months? When you put it that way, now I'm getting nervous. How did I do this? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, I I think a part of it is that if you have, um, first of all, whenever I write a book, I tell my students at LSU and other places this. I say, always try and write stories you think you can't quite pull off, that it looked too complicated for you to actually pull it off, and you'll achieve great things. I had other things I was trying to do within this narrative. I sort of cut out and revision. But I think when it comes down to it, I had just several guiding lights. First of all, listen to the voices. Listen to these characters' voices. Who mm-hmm. are they? Know the history and understand the history. And then thirdly, do no harm. You know, like many books in, involving um, women during that era, you know, there is some sexual violence. But I don't show that stuff because in my mind, I think about, you know, what would they want to see on the page? Mm-hmm. They want to see the truth. But to them, the truth is like being with their sisters and being in community, you know, these sort of planning sessions of like making sandwiches while plotting how you're going to defeat the Confederates, those kinds of things versus showing the violence so much. Sounds a little bit like a coven. <laughs> a little bit. There's, there's a little bit of witchery in here. There's a little there bit of There is a little witchery in Absolutely. there. Like, let us do it through and through. I mean, you yes. know, it's, it's amazing. It's just amazing. Now, of course, being the speculative fiction buff that you are, mm-hmm. Being the futurist that you you are too, you give us a framework for this story survival all the way through to twenty one seventy two. So imagine it's twenty one seventy two and someone is coming across this book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What are they going to think? What do you hope they'll think? Yeah, I, I took that again. I love to give credit where credit is due. I, I, I grew up reading. I volunteered at the library. My grandmother gave me books to read, and I was always amazed by the things that writers could pull off and. That idea, in my mind, comes from Margaret Atwood in Handmaid's Tale, where if, uh-huh. you're, if you've read it and you loved it, at the end of that book, there's this sort of, uh, there's these like professors in the future who are having a conference about what Offred experienced in Gilead, for example. And I've always been very touched by that idea about how our current struggles can seem a lot more distant and small in the future. And so in, in my book, I do several things. One, there are these inserts, which are these sort of historical documents from the time periods um, of the pre-Civil War era, 
up to like the modern time, even Wikipedia pages, for example. Yeah. Sort of explaining, you know, giving context. And you realize that whenever context is given, there's always a sort of slant to it. Somebody has an agenda. Maybe they are for the characters or against the characters or they're missing key bits of information that you yourself know. And so I want the reader to sort of feel tickled by it. You know, there's a document in there that kind of wonders, like, you know, did uh, Adi really exist, for example? Right. And you've just spent, you know, a few hundred pages reading about this character who clearly did exist. And in the future narrative, I love the idea of people looking back and saying, there were all these forces arrayed against these women, and yet they fought like hell constantly to make sure they could free themselves and free people that they love and take care of their families and their communities. And so I think that, you know, for the reader to have this idea of people paying respect to the past is a good idea to have within a, a text. We've been talking with Maurice Ruffin, whose wonderful new novel is The American Daughters. You can meet him when he signs books Tuesday, February 27th at 6 at Baldwin & Company. This is a ticketed event. Maurice, thank you so much. Susan, always a pleasure. Thank you. what's on tap in the literary life this week. Jeanette Weiland presents a story time, Beignets for Breakfast, Saturday, February 24th at 11 at Garden District Bookshop. Olympian gold medalist and two-time MVP player Asia Wilson appears in conversation with Cynthia Cooper to discuss her book, Dear Black Girls, How to Be True to You, Saturday, February 24th at 4 at Baldwin & Company. This is a ticketed event. J.T. Blatty signs Snapshot Sent Home from Afghanistan, Iraq, Ukraine, a memoir. Saturday, February 24th from 4 to 5.30 at Octavia Books. John Gegenheimer appears in conversation with former Congressman Bob Livingston to discuss Churchill versus Hitler, an alternative history novel. Sunday, February 25th at 4. Check out GardenDistrictBookshop.com for venue and ticket info. Historian Ian McGregor discusses and signs his latest book, The Lighthouse of Stalingrad, The Hidden Truth at the Heart of the Greatest Battle of World War II, Monday, February 26th at 6 at Octavia Books. Maurice Carlos Ruffin discusses and signs The American Daughters, Tuesday, February 27th at 6 at Baldwin & Company. This is a ticketed event. Cheryl Gerber discusses and signs The Dance Macabre, Celebration and Survival in New Orleans, Wednesday, February 28th at 6 at Octavia Books. Ashley Elston appears with actress Octavia Spencer to discuss her book, First Lie Wins, Thursday, February 29th at 6 at Garden District Bookshop. Octavia Spencer will also be available to sign copies of her books from her Randy Rose Ninja Detective series. Free, but reserve a ticket in advance and get ready for festival month in March. The New Orleans Book Festival at Tulane University, which opens March 14th with a session partnering with The Atlantic, runs through March 16th. The discussion will center on the editorial initiative to discuss the great novels of the last century. Walter Isaacson appears in conversation with Atlantic Editor-in-Chief Jeffrey Goldberg. A conversation features Atlantic Editors Ellen Cushing and Jane Kim, 
and staff writers and authors Clint Smith and Jamel Hill. Later that evening, novelist Jessamyn Ward and Jamel Hill appear together. The festival is free and open to the public, and attendees can register on the website, bookfest.tulane.edu. The complete schedule of events will be released later in February. Additional authors, illustrators, and panelists attending include Ken Oletta, Donna Brazil, Courtney Bryan, Liz Cheney, Ronan Farrow, Amy Guida, Gary Hoover, Mike Jones, Kate LaCour, Terry McMillan, Kimball Musk, Madeline Ostrander, Khadija Queen, Howell Raines, Walter Ramsey, Heather Cox Richardson, Nicole Ritchie, Mona Lisa Saloy, Jim Shudo, David Shipley, Cleo Wade, and Lisa Wade. There will be a culinary tract featuring a special panel of chefs discussing New Orleans family legacies, including Meg Bickford, Edgar Duke Chase IV, Ashley Hansen and E.J. Lagasse, and that will be moderated by Kevin Belton. Toya Booty and John Currents will team up for a discussion on Southern cuisine as well. Family Day takes place from 10 to 2 on Saturday, March 16th in the Avron Fogelman Arena in the Devlin Fieldhouse. The festival will once again partner with Scholastic Publishing. This year, the festival introduces a new component, the Living Library, in partnership with Howard Tilton Memorial Library. Volunteers will serve as living books that attendees can check out and interact with an author's unique stories. More information about the program is available at the library's website. For more information on New Orleans Book Festival at Tulane University, please visit bookfest.tulane.edu or follow on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Then, coming out March 20th, the 38th Tennessee Williams and New Orleans Literary Festival gets underway through March 24th. The Fame Shouting Contest takes place earlier this year, March 17th, at 2 p.m. in Jackson Square. An opening night, March 20th, features a night of burlesque. Authors on the schedule include Maureen Corrigan, Michael Cunningham, Colm Tobin, Justin Torres, Brad Gooch, Cynthia Carr, and many others. Check out TennesseeWilliams.net. And don't forget Saints and Sinners, the LGBTQ literary festival that runs concurrently that weekend at the Hotel Montleon. Check out sasfest.org. Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books, with major support from Rouse's Markets. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation, the Jefferson Parish Public Library, and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in The Reading Life do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The theme song for The Reading Life is by Matt Perrine and Sunflower City. The Reading Life is produced by George Ingmeyer and is a production of WWNO. You can listen to us anytime or subscribe to our podcast at wwno.org. And you can email us at the reading life at wwno.org.